We continue this morning walking through the last portion of chapter 6 of the Apostles' Sermon to the Hebrews. And there is something that, one last portion that I really want to draw our attention to and not quickly go through it, but pause and draw our attention one more time to just the last bit of language remaining there for you in chapter 6. And that is, I want to encourage you that we cannot speak it and think it and meditate upon it and hear it enough that the truth of the gospel is that it comes by promise exclusively and does not come through personal performance. We, we, we cannot hear that. I know I cannot. And I know I'm no different than you. I might be weird, more weird, but I'm not different as in necessarily as in substance and makeup. And I need to hear that every day. And so I didn't want to rush through the end of chapter 6, as maybe you would argue against me, you never rush through any of them. <laughs> Guilty as charged. And I didn't want to do so intentionally this time uh, with chapter 6 because it's so important. If I could encourage you as we develop personal performance versus promise and deliverance, that as we were just singing thematically, we'll pick up on that same thrust that no matter the challenge that you, this, this is I hope you'll, you'll own with me, no matter the challenge that you are facing this morning, no matter its category, no matter its overwhelming function in your life in an immediate ramification to the challenge, no matter, just own with me for a moment, no matter the challenge, category, its functionality, its burden, its immediate problem, or its long future sustaining difficulty, no matter, let's just own for a moment, no matter what that is, and not in a trite, minimizing way, genuinely, by faith, no matter the challenge that we are facing this morning, there is, this is what I want to encourage you, there is no sufficient cause for defeat. Now, certainly we can look at it, those things that face us, and I'm not going to go into a, a, a narrowing down of categories, because each of us have those categories in mind. In an age that is passing away, with which we are, or where in which, we are pilgrims on the way. We all face challenges, such as we do. So I'm not going to say which categories and so forth. You know them. But I would speak into them, as I would to myself, that there is within them, or whatever they are, or it is, there is therein no sufficient cause for defeat. Sufficient cause. And it's because of what we spoke last week, but continue to build on this week. And that is because, no matter the challenge, God is the defender and the benefactor of your life in Christ. Remember, we looked at, like Abraham, right? That, that is what we looked at last week, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then the writer is encouraging us, the apostle is encouraging us, like Abraham, us, the children... God is the defender. I am your shield, Abraham. 
So if you, here it is. I will defend against all intrusions against this covenant that could undo it. I will defend you. So I say to you this morning, there is therefore in the challenges we face, like Abraham, there is within them no sufficient cause for defeat if God be the defender of our life. I am your shield. And then he continues, your reward will be great. How can you say that? Because I am the benefactor. I can guarantee the outcome. Because I will defend you all the way there. So I have for you, believer in Christ, a reward that is exceedingly rich and beautiful. But I won't make it. Yes, you will. I'm going to face perils and challenges. I know. Of which I will place before you. To strengthen you. To test you. To try you. To purify you. And all the while, I will be defending you. I am your shield. And your reward will be very great. If those two things stand, as the preacher exhorts us in Abraham, therefore there is, you have to admit with me, by faith, it might not feel like it, but, but we all know we don't gather to encourage one another through feelings. But truth, by faith, it's substantively true. That we look beyond the circumstance and we give our feelings, though they're very real and genuine, we experience them, we give them by faith to the Lord, to truth, you are, though it might burden me, you are, I know, substantively, my defender. My reward in you that you have promised will be very great. The bridge between that and Abraham, Genesis, I think it was 15.1, is the introduction to the covenant ceremony at the end of chapter 15. The introduction where he speaks to Abraham. What I'm about to tell you is built on being your defender and your benefactor. He then unites us with that truth. Here the Apostle Paul is a read from you just briefly by way of introduction. How we know we, here's Abraham, Defender, benefactor, covenant with Abraham makes sense to me. How does it shape my life in the moment? Here it is as the apostle bridges the gap more explicitly even than when we continue in Hebrews. He says this, know then that it is those of faith. Know then. Know this for sure. You, this morning. Me, this morning. Know then for sure that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I am your defender, I am your benefactor. Know then, it is those of the faith of Abraham who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, and the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. These, these, the gospel was preached to Abraham. That's what we're about to explore in just a couple of moments where the writer exhorts us like Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. Saying this, here's the content of the gospel. Proclaim to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The bridge has been built. There it is, connecting you to the covenant, 
to what God is for Abraham, he is for the sons of Abraham. Your defender and the benefactor of your life in Christ. So, when we speak on gospel, the scripture foreseeing that God was going to renew the Gentiles, he preached the gospel to Abraham. That unites us this morning speaking on the difference between promise, gospel, and performance law. Like Abraham, if I could then conclude this brief comment here, like Abraham then, our covenant in Christ was initiated by promise. And it is maintained by promise. Never, if I could encourage you, please, we can't hear this enough. Never, please receive this morning. If you're kind of thinking, I didn't perform. How do I approach boldly? How do I sing with strength? How do I preach with strength? Because I remember. Never is my life in Christ determined by personal performance. That includes Wednesday. That's true then too and Thursday, and whatever is your most depraved experiential day. It's true then, too. So we learn from Abraham, as he is pointing out to us, how the gospel and perseverance work together. One does not compete with another. That when we're performing, we're persevering, it's all about me and all about us. And it's competing with the truths of the gospel. Am I secure in Jesus? Or am I running my race? Which one is it? They're working together. They're not in competition. So I would suggest it like this as we move forward. Performance never produces the promise. So get that categorically in your mind. When you think about uh, uh, perseverance, or you think of it in a term of personal performance, living by faith, remember, you must get this in your heart. Uh, a theologian um, that I enjoy reading, and I've enjoyed reading for years, really opened my eyes in so many ways. I remember him speaking at an event that I attended and him leaning over like this, you know, and he has far more authority and scary looks than me, so it won't have the same effect, so I scratched it from the notes. Um, but for him it meant something. Um, I remember here's the seasoned saint, preaching consistently the same gospel message. Uh, I don't know, he, I think he's probably just coming up almost near to 80 years old, I think. Faithful so many years, leaning over like this to look at all of us and say, it's not enough to know justification by faith. You need to have it in your blood. Now I just leaned over and acted like I was him. I'm not recreating the moment as you 
very well can see. He's right. In other words, it's not enough to memorize a confessional statement and repeat it. It's about a person in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're united to him. And that must shower over you again and again and again because we're hardwired for law. Because we work and we think in terms of personal performance. But it's never been true, ever. Nor will it ever be true. And that's what the apostle is going to get at this morning. That performance ever produces promise. It never works that way. Performance cannot gain promise. It works this way every single time in the text of Scripture. Promise always produces performance. It will. It always does. It will. It's yours. Christ and all of his benefits are yours. His promise in the gospel always produces performance. If we go the other direction, we're damned. Christ says this in John 15. You're probably familiar in John 15, 16. He says, this is how it's functioning. You did not choose me. Let's just square this away. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, okay, so great. We're in a relationship with Christ. Here it is. And then he continues and appointed you, this is my work in you, that you should go and bear fruit. This is the operation. It's not just in a vacuum. That I, I, I set my love upon you. And this is love. Not that you have loved him, but that he has loved you. That's it. No, and appointed you, and working in you, that you should go and bear fruit. That is the performance produced by the promise. I love you. And will therefore, it's not like one and then another, one comes with the other. He loves you. And therefore, in his love, commissions you going in his power. And fruit is growing. But what if my fruit begins to die? Wait a minute. What do I rest on? Personal performance? Or do I go back to promise? I would suggest promise because he says so. Here are the text. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain all the way to the end. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I am your defender. Well, my fruit might be in jeopardy through the challenges that I face. I'll defend. And I guarantee that your fruit will remain. Promise always produces performance. Performance never produces promise. We have to keep that paradigm in our minds every single day. This is what the apostle, the apostle sets out to prove 
And this is my goal with you this morning. Through this text to open up that the apostle proves out through its remainder that the way that promise relates to performance will never change. So God is not a game changer. Here are the rules. Here's the context. I face that with my children. I start whooping them at something. Now it doesn't count. The rules have changed. Wait a minute. I said this and you said that and that's how we're doing it. No, 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 no. That only counts for one. That that, that counted for two. Five minutes ago when you were making them. Well, that only counts for one. God is not in the role of changing the rules. So that at some point, it is back to performance to produce the promise. It wasn't at the beginning, I get that. And it's not when I'm feeling like I'm doing well. But then when I'm downtrodden or discouraged, have the rules changed? Do I get encouraged by performance? Have the rules changed? No. They will never change. Promise alone, promise always, produces performance. Notice how we notice, uh, notice how he displays this in the text. If you join with me then in Hebrews chapter 6 as we get into the text, that the rules will never change. This is the way that God is operating. And I want to draw your attention to what God has provided for our faith-filled and patient plotting. And I say faith-filled and patient plotting because that's the man Abraham. We have received this, this gaze into Abraham in, in verses 13 and 14 and 15. And you notice the mark about Abraham. He is a faith-filled, in verse 15, a patient individual. Walking with God through many obstacles, relying upon promise, not performance. So I want to encourage you how the text shows us what God has provided you this morning. Facing challenges, but there is no sufficient cause for defeat in those challenges because God has provided you everything necessary for faith-filled and patient plotting. As you do that, plod each and every day by faith. There is no sufficient cause for defeat, even when some of the plotting is a little worse than the others. God has provided in that plotting all that is necessary for faith-filled and patient plotting, or what we call perseverance. Look at verse 16 and notice where he begins to build our strength that God has provided all that is necessary. Verse 16 is where we begin and I'll cover the remainder of the text this morning, 16 through 20. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Now, what is he doing here? He spoke about the covenant with Abraham, and we looked at Genesis 15 and verses 13, 14, and 15, and now he grounds our understanding of Abraham, 13, 14, and 15, into a common practice that would make sense to, maybe not all of us necessarily at the surface, but the original readers, oath-taking. He grounds our confidence that our perseverance is relying upon God, not ourselves. And he does so by drawing our attention to a common practice of oath-taking. So he's appealing to this human practice to build our confidence in what God has done. In other words, here's your operations. P, 
people act like this. And you say, I understand that. I've seen that on display. In fact, I engage in that behavior myself. Okay, great. Now, take this understanding and look at how God entered into it. And therein lies your confidence for faith-filled and patient plotting. Okay, so what we're doing right now is we're looking at this example and we're going to mine it out and then we're going to apply it. Simple enough. This is the process of what we ought to be familiar with, oath-taking. However, as he points to a common practice, he's drawing out or mining out a very clear distinction between men's covenant-taking and God's covenant-making. So the practice, we get it, yes, for men act like this. Exactly. We know that. Yet, God entered into this convention so that you might grasp it, yet he is not just like another man making just another oath. Ah. He's utterly distinct? Yes. Where is he utterly distinct? Well, let's begin there. The first distinction that we notice within men's oath-taking in verse 16 is consider the implication, verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. What is the implication of swearing by something greater than yourself? Can you think just for a moment with me, what is the implication of that statement? If we're building in confidence toward God, faith-filled and patient plotting, you are my defender and my benefactor of all my life in Christ. I will bear fruit and my fruit will remain. Well, let's take a look at men for a moment. Look at how they behave. They swear by something greater than themselves. What is the implication in that? I would suggest, great, no good answers from the audience. I would suggest two things that that implies quite clearly. Number one, a general weakness of integrity in man's speech. A general weakness and the integrity of man's speech. I was reading an article um, this week from the Wall Street Journal saying, uh, we operate on this socially, and I think all of you would, would recognize that as well, in what is called the, the conversational tee-up. And so what we do is we use phrases, and now the university, I believe it's the University of Texas, has produced a study that we all already knew. You know how that works each and every day? And they're always changing. One day coffee's your worst enemy, going to kill you, and the next day is the only thing keeping you alive. And every study proves it, both at the same time. Anyway, this yet one more study has come out, which must be true, right? Um, from the University of Texas, that is that we use these, when we use these what is called conversational tee-ups, we're actually indicating, here comes the dishonesty. So we operate on this level with one another, so it's not a surprise that what's about to come at us. We're filtering it through what we also do use, conversational tee-ups. And that is some of the indicators that you would, well, I'm sure all of you use, unfortunately, and have experienced. And that is something like along the lines of, you know, I wish that I could say, and then you proceed to give information. And you're really not wishing to be able to say what you're about to deliver you're saying something else. Another one would be something along the lines of, I wish I could remember the study's examples. Uh, you're, uh, you've probably used them with me, timer again. Uh, uh, the, the conversational tee up indicating that there is a dishonesty coming. Yes, well, the obvious one is um, 
to tell you the truth. Right? You've distinguished what you usually do and you want to be taken serious this particular instance. Um, to be honest, was another one listed there. To be honest, right, you're already filtering. So we're really distinguishing your general speech to what you really do mean at this moment. And yet, what you mean at this moment is further dishonest because you're really setting it apart as honesty. And this is how, again, what the study concluded. How then do we view one another conversationally? That there is a lack of integrity with one another in our general use of speech when it comes to matters of consequence. In other words, awkward conversations. So it is here that this is not a new practice, but a little bit more formalized in a covenant situation. We take an oath, or even now you'd see we swear on the Bible. But again, really, does that set people apart? Like, oh yeah, I'm going to put my hand on the Bible, and therefore you know that I'm not going to lie on the oath. Uh, again, uh, yet what does it indicate that we even have those categories for ourselves? Well, I know you generally lie all the time, but this time I need you to tell me the truth. There's, there's a general sense of the weakness of integrity within men's speech, and it's always been there. So then they swear by something greater than themselves, and that would generally call to witness. God, uh, you know, my, maybe we would say something along the lines, you know, I swear on my mother's grave, or the life of my children, along those lines, to heighten that of consequence. So number one, what does the implication of swearing by something greater than themselves indicate about those in the oath ceremony? There's a general weakness of integrity regarding man's speech. Secondly, what is another indication or an implication of the statement swearing by something greater than themselves? And that is, number two, disputes require a binding oath. They require it. There's a dispute in the text. That's what it says, right? It says, in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. What is the implication of all this? Disputes require a binding oath, whereby consequences are significant in order to eliminate the general weakness of our integrity. We need an oath here. And I'm going to ratify it with you because generally I know you're kind of a little bit suspect on your integrity. So let's create an oath here. Otherwise, in this dispute, it will not be settled. Swear on your mother's grave. That's the only way I'm going to believe what you're telling me. And that, the consequence of that is, your mother will not rest in peace. Do you want that for her? This is, and that's the only way I'm going to get past this dispute. You and I are sharing. It's not enough to say, I give you my word. I don't care about that. I'm talking swear by something bigger than you because there's a general lack of integrity with you anyway. And that's not enough. I want an oath. I want a binding arrangement that makes your mom run from eternal peace if this is not the truth. And the apostle saying, are you familiar with this? This, this oath taking? In other words, generally speaking, these are not the days of John Wayne. Man's speech is much more, much less than his bond. My word is my bond. No one cares about that. That's not truthful enough. 
His word, that is, men's word, is generally unreliable, and in the worst case, it is outright dishonest. Therefore, men, in matters of consequence, where it actually matters in a dispute, a binding oath must be taken for confirmation that truth is being told here. This is the covenantal context. Now, plug this back into the theology of perseverance. Why? Because that's what we're dealing with since the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. We're dealing with the issue of God's people persevering by grace. And what will keep you faith-filled and patient in your plotting? If that's the question, plug what you just conceptualized about the general lack of integrity in human speech. And let me ask you, is a good word and pep talk enough for you to persevere? A fellow human being giving you a good word, is that enough to empower you to make it all the way to the finish line? It's not. In other words, human speech, it serves a function, a particular role. And I hope we seek out to encourage one another. I mean, we, we know the New Testament's pouring forth all of that language. Care for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Help one another. And that serves a critical role in the life of a church. Brothers and sisters encouraging one another in Christ. That's a significant ministry. But I ask you, is it enough that you, an individual, heard from another person who's just like you? Is that enough? And the answer is no. It is not enough. I was running the other day listening to Pandora Station. I'm sure all of you uh, have a Pandora set up somehow. And the commercial comes on, you know, and you're dying. You just want to quit. Start walking. I wonder if anybody's going to even see me if I just start walking. <laughs> and the Pandora commercial comes on and says, hey, you know, get fired up. You remember that last tune that got you through those final reps? That last tune that pushed you across the finish line? You know, like Pandora and buy the one that's not for free. You know, that, that, that's the encouragement because, because that's the role or the function in perseverance exercising that Pandora is playing. It's getting you there, baby. It's like, I'm dying. It's like, oh no, you know, my favorite song just came on. Whoa, I got seven more reps easily. Thank you, Pandora. That's the commercial. You're, you're familiar. And, and, and that, that, that's, yes, I got to admit Pandora's got me another block or two a time myself. It serves a function. Encouragement is necessary. But is it an end? No, it isn't. I need more than Pandora. And we need more than fellow jars of clay. We need to hear a more certain word in issues of grave consequence. That is, as Martin Luther described, and we have sang time and again here at Redeemer at different points, as Luther describes it, we need that word that is above all 
earthly powers, not one that, that transcends these categories. Thank you. That note of encouragement empowered me one mile out of my thousand yet to go. I need that word that is above all earthly words, above all earthly power in the role of perseverance. So, guess what God has provided? His word that is more convincing than a human word. And that's where the text immediately begins to go to convince us. Notice God's provision of that more sure or that greater or that more convincing word. So he enters into the covenant ceremony that makes sense to us, yet with a more sure or more convincing word. Verse 17 says, So, given this context that you know and I know in the role of human speech, so this is what God has done to strengthen you when God desired to show you show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. I'm your defender and benefactor. And I want you to be utterly convinced. So, when God desired to show us more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, it's a burden. This is hard. This is not a sufficient cause for defeat. Because I'm unchanging in the character of my purpose in you and to convince you I am guaranteeing it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things I want you believer in Christ to be so convinced you're gonna make it because I chose you and I appointed you that you would go forward and not die or peter out but that you would go and you'd bear much fruit that fruit will remain. And I want you to have that confidence, that faith-filled and patient plotting that this is hard but isn't sufficient for a cause of defeat. So, by two unchangeable things, by the way, a great systematic theological statement there to tuck away and never forget, it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Now, we must deal with what we dealt with already with men's worth. What does the oath-taking indicate about the nature of man's speech that is insufficient, lacks full integrity or forthrightness, and at some points, uh, more than others, it is outright dishonest and misleading. Is that the same thing that's parallel between God taking oath and man taking oath? That there's essentially, if had he not made that covenant ceremony, that we are to take the promises like lacking sufficiency in his word? Is that a parallelism? Absolutely not. It is God's merciful condescension that he mercifully added an oath not because his word is otherwise generally unreliable. Well, then why did he do it? Please. Because he mercifully and lovingly desires you to be utterly convinced of the unchangeable character 
of his promise. Here's a human convention. I operate in all the time, and I understand the whole swearing ceremony. Okay, great. Let me enter into that and make you convinced. And by the way, I'm not offering you to swear on my mother's grave. I can't swear by anything greater than myself. And I swear upon my own name that I own this covenant. I will own the execution of all of its blessings, and I will own for breach of the covenant. If it is to be broken, I will own its curses. I will unilaterally, unconditionally perform this merciful work in you. But I don't feel, I don't care. It's true. What's changing in this equation? You. And your emotions. You. And the challenges you face. Did you notice what the text explicitly says is unchanging? God's purpose for you according to promise. Perseverance is not. Promise hasn't changed into performance. God is unchanging in his commitment and in his promise that you will bear fruit and your fruit will remain. But what if he, no, he took care of that. By the way, it is impossible for God to lie. That's better than an encouraging word just from one of us where it is very possible for us to lie. So he enters in, performs this ceremony for you. That you'd gaze upon his promise and never forget. He himself has taken an oath that you will forever live within Christ. What is then, we must ask, what is the unchangeable character of his purpose? What is the unchangeable character? And the answer is that the gospel and all of its benefits including perseverance, believer. Always comes by promise. Never will it come by personal performance. Plugging this back into the theology of perseverance, which is our duty since this is its text. Taking this and plugging it into the whole. What does this mean for my faith-filled and patient plotting before the face of God? What does this mean, this whole text, and I conclude with you that by relying on God's promise to me in Christ, which is given to me with four great assurances, and I think we handed them to you 
by the verse card this week are these four assurances that we wanted to take as coming out of this text that you would take with you at the conclusion of chapter 6 in the great four great assurances that God has given that I am his and he is mine and I am in Christ and he loves me and he mercifully and unchangeably is committed to my good and his glory in me four unchangeable truths if you have them there Will you just kind of look, and I'm just going to briefly state them, and then we'll close in prayer. How can I be faith-filled and patient in my plotting? Is human speech enough? No, it is not. I need to rely on these four great assurances from this text. Number one, God is unchanging in the character of his purpose. Think about that. You are always changing. We are feeble, but He is not. Number two, remember, this, there is no sufficient cause for defeat because, number two, He guaranteed my future in Christ with an oath. He didn't need to, He did. That I might have confidence in him not me he guaranteed my future in Christ with an oath number three third great assurance that there is nothing in my path sufficient for the cause of defeat in my life because it is impossible for God to lie so he said he's unchanging he said that he bound himself by oath to me and then I need to believe it by faith because he said it is impossible for him to lie to me number four Jesus is unfailingly sure steadfast and he is mine Let's pray. 